Good morning, Sunday after Christmas, everybody. How are you doing? That's it, three of you. Everyone else had a terrible Christmas, no holidays. Family starting to smell like fish, ready to get rid of them. Is that it? Is that what's going on? Okay, anyway, so uh, here we are again. Um, it's at the end of the year. Now, we were putting together our calendar uh, to do the services, and we kind of try to map that out in the future. So, like, right now I can already look on my calendar to see when I'm going to be up teaching uh, throughout 2016. We were doing 2015 and got to the end of the year, and Craig says, well, you we know who's going to be up the last Sunday, because now it's tradition. It's going to be David, because I just, and so I was preparing this, and I went back and looked. Yeah, this will be the sixth year in a row, the last Sunday of the year. It's me, so if you're... So if, you're, if it's painful for you, you can go ahead and look next year on the counter. You can go, well, that's Sunday. We can find something to do or whatever. Um, anyway, so Craig, a couple weeks ago, Craig was sharing with us because as part of our admin series, he was talking about this is a time we generally use to reflect. Now, let me stop here because the cosmos has no idea that there's any kind of special time of year on planet Earth. Uh, it doesn't know that we're going to be flipping a calendar page. It doesn't understand that there's celebrations of birthdays of saviors and all that. The planets have no ideas. They're just spinning along. Right? But what we do as people, though, is we, we arbitrarily have picked these things. Actually, God sort of set up the timetables for us so we can sort of track things. And so that's what we do. And Craig talked about this season being a time we generally get introspective. We evaluate ourselves and we look at where we are, where we've come through to this point, and where we're going to be going in what we call the next year, which is really just another day like any other, but we're going to turn a calendar page, and so it helps us to do that. I'm going to talk a little bit about that today, about evaluating ourselves. Um, so as we do that, with that sort of as a, as a foundational thought, just quickly, I'm going to ask you a question. Would you say that there is evidence that this Jesus, this Christ, the one who came to save the world, uh, the world from their sins and to bring peace to the world and to give us abundant life. Would you say there's evidence that he is in you? Or more importantly, would those around you, your friends, your family, your coworkers, would they say, based on who you are, what they see, that would they look at you and they would say, oh, Jesus is definitely in that guy or Jesus is definitely in that gal? And that's sort of one of the things we're going to tackle a little bit today. We're not going to answer that question, but that's the question we need to be asking ourselves. Do we reflect our king? Because that's what we should be striving to do. And as we head into 2016, I'm going to look at a couple of different passages that look at people evaluating themselves. And we're going to see how some people do it, and then we're going to see the way that we are expected to be honest in our evaluation. And so we're going to do that in a couple of minutes. Uh, before we do that, let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for another chance to come together, to open up your word, to look at what it teaches us. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit is here opening hearts, opening ears, preparing our minds to receive uh, a message from you. Lord, I pray that your words land on fertile soil. I pray that my, uh, my words are simply uh, an exaltation of you and your word. Lord, we pray all this in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen. So as we kick this off today, I'm going to tell a little bit about me. I'm going to tell on myself a little because it's a pretty story that gets ugly fast. And so um, I'm going to talk about that. As I was growing up when I was younger, because um, I'm not younger anymore, when I was growing up, um, I was actually a pretty good student. And to be honest with you, if I'm going to be honest, I was a very good student. And I'm not boasting, I'm just telling you the history. Um, I was a straight-A student, 
from the time I was very little until I graduated high school, I just made straight A's. It just, I just did. Now, when I was in grade school, the teachers actually would send notes home to my mom, letters home to mom saying, David's read all the books in the room. We, we're out of books. You've got to take him to the library. If he's going to read more, you've got to find some new material because he's just blasting through everything here. Now, I didn't think I was any kind of brainiac, and I certainly don't think of myself like that at all. I didn't have any idea I was any different than any other kid. I just loved reading, and I loved soaking that stuff up. And so that was just the way it was. Now, as I got into middle school and high school, it just seemed kind of the same way. I just, I just did well. And I didn't just do well like academically, like I was hanging out with the nerds all the time. I actually played, I was like a multi-sport athlete. And I was okay. I wasn't like a starter on the basketball team. I was like the sixth man. And then uh, I ran cross country and, and ran track and a few events in track. And I, I kind of excelled at everything I tried. It was just, quite frankly, it wasn't fair. It just, that it, it kind of came easy to me. You know, school just wasn't a challenge. And I, I look back and I go, that really wasn't fair. And what really wasn't fair about it is if I have to be honest with you, the amount of effort I put into it was pretty much minimal. I could sort of sit in the class, listen, pay attention, and just absorb and master the material. And I really did understand it. It just, for me, it just kind of came natural. And that's not necessarily everybody's experience. And I certainly have seemed to deviate with that as I get older. That doesn't seem to happen as easy as it used to, to be honest with you. But I, I look back sometimes and think, boy, what if I'd applied myself? What if I'd worked at it and tried? I wonder what I, how good I could have been in athletics or some of these extracurricular things, because I was involved outside of school and things too. So it's not surprising, because of my academic achievements, that I got a scholarship to IU. Matter of fact, I had a couple of scholarships. School wasn't going to cost me anything. So I showed up at school, and the first thing I discovered was the student union, which is really cool. I mean, a lot of cool people hanging out there. There was a lot of activity, a social hub. Uh, I, I, I met all these people that we, that we tended to call at the time, and it, probably they're still there now, uh, professional students. It's like that's what they chose for a career. It's like, yeah, I'm a 17th year senior. You know, I'm studying philosophy because I got six other degrees already. And they were, those guys were always hanging out in the student union, and you could talk to them. It was fascinating. I loved sitting there doing that. The other thing cool that happened my freshman year of college is this thing came on the television that nobody had ever heard of before. It was called MTV. That's how old I am. It was, and so you'd sit around in the studio and stare at the people singing to you on the screen. It was like, wow, they're singing. I, I look back now and go, that was just dumb. I don't get it. But, but it was, so we, I wasted a lot of time there. The problem is that didn't leave me a lot of time to study. And probably I went to class maybe 85% of the time as well. Now, I didn't think that should cause me any issues because, quite frankly, in the past, that system always worked. I mean, I could just show up most of the time, absorb it, and master the material, and be moving on. Everything was great. What I discovered, though, was that at this level, um, things were a little more difficult. I think that expectation that I could just rest on the fact that things just generally came easy to me uh, was probably a false expectation I had. Um, and so... It wasn't very far into my, oh, I guess it was near the end of my first semester. I got called into the uh, chancellor's office, and they said, uh, David and Shepard, we're, we're rescinding our scholarship. You're losing your scholarship. We're taking it away. They said, well, it's a one-year award, so you'll get it till the end of the year. 
And, but they said, don't even apply for next year. Now, see, this award, this scholarship was supposed to be, you get it, and then as long as you just didn't do something totally stupid, which, which I had done, but as long as you just did okay, you just kind of reapplied and went through the motions, and you got it again every year. So you didn't have to really excel, but you had to be acceptable. Now, I think I set an all-time record for the lowest GPA of, a first, of an incoming freshman in the honors program. Um, I bet nobody here could break my record. My first semester GPA at IU as an honors student, straight A's, never did anything but leading into that. First semester GPA, 1.8. Yeah, that's the same reaction my parents had. <laughs> they just kind of went, what? Yeah, they were really thrilled to find out that I'd lost my scholarship, so they sat down with me. It felt like going to the chancellor's office all over again. And they said... They said, well, uh, you'll, you get the scholarship till the end of the year, so that's great. After that, if you're going to continue on to college, you can pay for it. I said, you squandered your scholarship, it's on you. And so that really jarred me and shook me, awakened me. I had never tasted failure like that and realized that, wait a minute, maybe I can't just rest on what I'd done in the past to get me into my future. Maybe I was going to have to take my education seriously. So I transferred to Ball State and changed majors, and I ended up making the dean's list every year after that until I graduated. So it's a, kind of a happy ending at, at the end of the day. I didn't make straight A's, I have to confess, uh, but I was able to, to do well. Um, I never got another scholarship. Um, so, Well, actually, I sort of did. I got some Army money, but um, that was because I was going to go in afterwards. Um, you see, I couldn't count on prior success to lead me into my future. That's a lesson that I learned, and I think it applies to every area of our lives. And as we're talking about today, our faith and our Christian walk, we have to remember the very same thing. You cannot rely on a past experience with the Father to carry you through today. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about how we grow in Him, how we, how we get to know Him. The truth is this. Past reliance on God breeds present reliance on yourself. And reliance on yourself is a very dangerous place to live relative to the kingdom of God. So our first scripture today, with that sort of as our foundation, we're going to look at my first example of somebody who's self-evaluating. This is a parable that Jesus told to a bunch of people that were pretty high on themselves. A bunch of guys that thought they were pretty much all that and a bag of chips when it came to their, to their faith and their religion. And so Jesus told them this parable to explain to them the way it really was. And this is taken from Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9, and it says this. <clears throat> To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. That sounds like the beginning of a joke, doesn't it? So these two guys go to the temple to pray. I'm sorry. Um, two, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee uh, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers and evildoers and adulterers or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Pretty proud of himself as he prayed to our Holy Father. And then Jesus contrasts, contrasts that with this starting in verse 13. He says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus says this, Jesus says, I tell you that this man, speaking of the tax collector, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. 
For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You see, the Pharisee in this parable, the Pharisee, when he looked at himself, what he saw in his evaluation was somebody that that had gone through all the right stuff. Man, I've been through all the training and the synagogues and grew up, and now I'm a Pharisee. So my, my lineage alone should be enough to carry me into this holy position before God. And then he recounts to God, well, I'm doing all the right things, man. I've done all the stuff. You just need to recognize it. The tax collector, on the other hand, <coughs> excuse me, the tax collector, he recognizes his inability to have any worthiness of himself before a holy God. See, what he did is he trusted in God's grace and God's mercy for his salvation. He even asks for it. God, show me mercy. On the outside, the Pharisee looked like a pretty good win. I mean, he's like, he's able to, to put up the pretense. But God says over and over again in his scripture, and Jesus even said in some passages, that God looks at the heart. He knows you on the inside. He knows what your heart looks like, regardless of how polished you keep the outside regardless of the motions you might go through he knows what the heart is thinking and what the heart can do he very much knows what we're capable of doing see he knows this he knows that left to our own strength so i'm talking about in our own strength right what we what we bring to the table what we can offer up according to that uh we will fall into sin for left to our own strength we can fall into sin we can really mess things up we can get ourselves to a place of great pain and suffering, a place where there's all kinds of chaos, and then turn around and wonder, how in the world did I even get here? All because we're relying on ourselves, counting on what we've been able to accomplish to get us moving forward in, in the kingdom. So I'm going to give you, I want to paint you a little picture here of... Um, of how this subtle change can happen, uh, even among believers, how you can start to think in a way that pretty soon you find yourself distanced from God. So it goes kind of like this. Maybe you have, maybe you're just an average guy or an average couple, and so you have jobs or one of you has a job. It's maybe not your dream job. So it's maybe not the best, maybe not where you'd really hope you'd be at this point in your life. I, mean, I think a lot of us feel that way. But, but you have a job. You're kinda, it's an okay job. It basically will pay the bills. You're not having to live on the street. You're doing okay. You actually can afford a place to live. So you either have a house or a rental, and, and it's okay. It's not a castle. It's not luxurious necessarily, but it's not a slum. You're, you're, you're in the middle somewhere. You're, you're doing okay. You're, you're really okay, okay? Um, and then maybe you've got a, a car, or a couple, each of you do maybe. It's, it's not a Yugo, so it's not you know, junk, but it's not an Escalade. It's somewhere in the middle. And it's just okay. It kind of gets you from A to B. You can either afford the payment or it's paid for. So things are just kind of okay. You're going along there. So you're, you're just okay. Maybe you have a, uh, a, a big screen TV. And I'm not an 80-incher, right, but like a 40 or a 43. Or, you know, it's, it, most people have that kind of thing. You probably have a cell phone or both of you have cell phones. They're more than likely smartphones. So one of you's got the Galaxy S7 whatever. One of you's got the iPhone 6 Plus, and you guys have fight about that, whatever. And then, um, so, you know, they're adequate. They're certainly good. They're, you wouldn't say you're poor, but you're not rich, right? You're like, but you're able to make the payments, that kind of thing. You're just okay. You, you might have an iPad. You, you, you might have a, a couple of iPads. You might have a decent computer. You know, not top of the line racy, but it works. I mean, really, 
You just don't need a lot. So you don't find yourself in need necessarily. Life is okay. And so you might even start describing yourself that way or thinking of yourself that way. Even if you don't say it out loud, you're like, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm okay. You know, things are moving along. I don't have a great need. And the problem with that is this. There's, there's two big problems with sort of confessing we're okay. First of all, when we start thinking that way, we begin to easily move into this place where we think we're okay because of us. I think the source of my okayness is me. I think that somehow what I've been able to accomplish, this list of things I was able to do has brought me to the point where I'm okay. It becomes hard to imagine needing a God who's going to intervene in some meaningful way because you don't really have need. As a matter of fact, it would be hard to imagine God intervening at all, that you even need him at all, really, because everything's just okay. You're just kind of, I'm, I'm good. And the second, so that's the first risk, because you, you think it's you that's keeping you okay. And the second is this. When you, when you say, I'm okay, you're quoting someone, and it's the devil. You see, that's the same lie, the same tired lie he's been peddling since the garden. When he came to Eve, yeah, his words weren't, you're okay, but that's what he was telling her. You're okay. You don't, you don't need God to complete you. Well, what do you really need? You guys are working the garden. You're doing this stuff. I mean, you're, 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 you know, life is pretty easy. You're just, you're, you're going along. You're plodding along. Why would you need God to come in and just make everything difficult and confusing and he's probably just lording over you? He was just telling her, you're okay. You don't need God to complete you. You can handle this. It's pretty easy. And once you cross that line, once you start hearing that lie and start thinking, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm pretty okay, what happens is this. God becomes just one more thing in your life. He's just something else you can talk about. He, he's just among the many things you have going on. You don't exclude him completely. I mean, you want to come to church. You enjoy the worship. We all want to get up and sing and praise, and it's fun to do in a group, and the music's kind of uplifting. It makes us feel a little better. You might hear a good message, like the ones that Chad or Craig would teach. Somebody got it, all right? And you get inspired, and you walk out going, yeah, I, you know what? All right, we should buckle down. We should, yeah, that's right. We can do that. And, and you like that, but rely on God, really? I mean, for what? I mean, everything's pretty much okay. You don't really need God, right? Do you see how, do you see how I painted that picture? Did you see from the beginning? It's, everything's just okay, and we're just, we just think that way. See, what we do is we do this. We settle. See, we've settled. We've just stopped. It's like, yeah, I'm just going to ride the wave now. You know, I'm on top. I'm cresting. I'll just ride it in, dude. I'm, I'm cruise control. I'm just going to slide in. This is really, I mean, I'm pretty comfortable. That's where we go. See, we don't pursue understanding and knowing God. We don't pursue an intimate relationship with his because, quite frankly, we don't see the point. Life's doing, I mean, we're just okay. We're, we're making it. So let me... Let me, let me share a, a picture or an idea that was given to me by, I think this is the great analogy to what I'm talking about. When, if we are fighting to be in the kingdom of God, it is just that. It is a fight. You see, everything in our culture, everything in this lost, broken, crushing, beating world is on a journey directly to hell. 
Everything's going that way. It's a slide. It's a mad dash to see who can burn first. That's where the world's headed. And if you're going to be a part of the kingdom, you are flying right in the face of that. You are climbing right up the white water. You're going just the opposite direction. I like to call this, and one of the guys in my Monday night groups brought me this idea a, couple year, a year ago, I think. And I just love this. It's a great picture. We are going up the down escalator. That's, that's the Christian life. It's, it's a constant move against a bunch of people rolling at you, a bunch of people that are in your way, and not only are they coming against you, the stairs themselves are moving down. So if you think you're going to ride this wave and just put it on autopilot and cruise on in, let me, give it, let me have a, a, a little reality check for you. You're standing still on the down escalator. If you think you're motionless, it's a myth. you got one option. You stop moving, you're going back. It's the only, the only two options. You're either making an effort to get up or you're going back. See, you can't just slide in. And pretty soon, we find ourselves far, far away. That's my Star Wars moment there. We find ourselves in a, in a faraway place, and we, we don't even, pretty soon we forget what God, we don't even recognize what God was like. We forget the things we knew about him. See, we can't rest on what we knew about him before because it fades. That's our flaw, not his. So let me change it up a little. What if your story shifts? Let's suppose that's you. You're Mr. Surfer Dude, I'm on top of the wave riding it, man, right? And then calamity comes. Suddenly your life isn't easy. Suddenly there's some tragedy. You lose a loved one, lose a child, lose a spouse, lose a job. Now what will you do? See, you'll find yourself like some freshman in college who just said, man, it's all been easy to this point. And then they hand you this project which you think you can just wait till 48 hours before and still swing and hit a home run. But you can't because you know why? You don't have any skills. You haven't developed any pattern of how to study. If you are on, the, if you're on this escalator, you think you're still, but you're actually going backwards, you think you're just going to cruise in with God, here's the, here's the truth. Have you been tuning your ear during that time of ease so that you know and can hear the Holy Spirit when he speaks? Are you tuning yourself in to know exactly what God's voice sounds like? Have you been spending time in God's word, putting it in your heart, putting it in your memory so that when this tragedy comes, you pull that sword out and you wield it against the lie of the enemy? Have you been spending your time on, on your knees at the feet of God at his throne room, praying, learning how to make proper petition before your king, learning how to wait patiently for an answer which may not come in your time. Have you been practicing those? Because if you're riding that wave and being Mr. Cool on autopilot, if you're trying to stand still on the escalator, let me tell you, you don't have those tools. Your toolbox is empty. And there, you know, there's a great example throughout history of a group of people that did this same thing over and over again. They were called the nation of Israel. God chose them. He said, you're my people. And when, and when you have Christ in you, he says to you, you're my people. And so we're just like them. Here's what happens. They, God rescued them the first time out of Egypt. He pulls them out, right? And they're all worshiping and excited because it's fresh in their minds. And then God makes sure that they're, they're taken care of. Their needs are met. Pretty soon life gets easy. Yeah, our needs are met. 
Pretty soon they forget where that need meeting comes from. They think they're meeting their own needs, and pretty soon they forget all about God, and they wander off, and they can't hear his voice anymore, and then calamity comes again because they don't have the protection of God, and they get whisked off to Babylon or somewhere else. They've been in prison multiple times over the years, and each time God would wait, and finally they would turn and go, gosh, why am I doing this? I need to cry out to God. They'd cry out, and guess what? He always heard. You see, when he always heard, he would come and rescue them again. It's like, it's, it's like I'm not talking about salvation here, so don't go there. They were still his people. They never lost their position. It's like the prodigal son, right? Remember the prodigal son story? He runs off, squanders everything, kind of like some stupid freshman in college, right? Squanders it all, comes groveling back. And, but see, we always think that story is you can always come back. The, the, answer, the, the key to that story is this. He never lost his sonship. Sure, he could come back because he was still the son. That's the point. See, we have to remember this. We have to understand we must rely on God today moving forward. Not anything we've done or ever could have achieved or even our previous reliance on God will help you going into the future if you're not relying on him now. Only that way can we successfully walk our Christian faith. You can't do it any other way. It's impossible. So we have to understand who we are and how our strength is completely worthless. Here's an example. I read a story while I was preparing for this about a pastor down south somewhere. I forget what church. And what he does, anytime he hires somebody to work in the church, so anytime he's hiring staff for his church, he interviews, and he always asks this question. He says to them, do you believe you can be tempted to commit adultery? And, of course, they always, you know, he said they, the normal response is they get all wide-eyed and flustered, and they say, I always say this, well, I don't think there's any way I could ever do that. And he usually, and then he said if that was their response, he always replied with this, well, that's too bad because we only hire people who realize they could be tempted to commit adultery or they could be tempted to be greedy or angry or selfish or prideful. Those are the people that understand they can be tempted to do that in their own strength. You see, the secret to living incorruptible lives of integrity is knowing that of ourselves, and that's the key, of ourselves, we're completely corrupt and liable to disintegrate spiritually at any moment. One moment where you choose against God could destroy you. It's that serious. Now, that's not a reason to despair and say, well, there's no way I can live a life of integrity. That's not true at all. But the prerequisite to a life of integrity is understanding that you can't produce it from within you. It can't be had except from the strength of the Father. Let me give you a perfect example of that. And this is my other example of self-evaluation from the Scripture, and it's the proper way we self-evaluate. This was Paul. Now, Paul, near the end of his ministry, should have been able to write novels about how great he was, you know. But we never saw that. We never saw Paul saying, you know, I got this holiness thing down, man. I got it. I'm in. God's pretty happy with me. You know, I'm pretty good. I'm getting pretty good at this. Planted a bunch of churches. I got followers everywhere. You know, the big councils. I've, I've, I've made my way. He never did that. See, he had humility. And here's what he wrote to his dear, dear friend Timothy, who was a pastor that he put in place and, and he wrote this letter to him. In 1 Timothy, uh, the first chapter, verse 15, here's how, here's how that reads. Now check this out. This is Paul examining himself. He says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. There is nothing you can do, nothing you have done, nothing that is in your past that could ever exceed what Paul already did. It says so in the Scripture. The Holy Spirit allows us to read this in Scripture. He says he's the worst among sinners. One translation says the chief among sinners. This is how Paul, Paul, he wrote most of the New Testament. He really founded what we call the, the church of today. This is a guy that identifies himself if he uses his own integrity as the chief of sinners. And he goes on to say this, so here's the beauty of it. But for that very reason, because you of yourself are sinful, for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, he says it again, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul wasn't being falsely modest. He was showing us that the closer we get to God, the more God reveals how unchristlike we are of ourselves. He's making us Christ-like, but it's him, not us. This is why Paul said in another passage, it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. You need to reduce you and increase him. We only begin to rely on our Savior moment by moment when we recognize that we need His grace and mercy moment by moment. Not yesterday's mercy and grace for today. That's not going to carry. Only when we recognize that we're weak and unable to rule ourselves. You can't rule yourself in a way that pleases God. I can't rule myself in a way that pleases God. And that's okay, because you know what God did? God sent his Holy Spirit for that very purpose. God's Holy Spirit was sent to rule over you that you might please him. It's, it's, like a, it's a catch-22 a little bit, because we're like, well, so God comes to please himself? Yes, he does. God's been about pleasing himself since creation. Have you seen the Grand Canyon? I think he made that for him. We just get the benefit. The Holy Spirit pleasing God in you is what we're after. And only when we submit to that will we ever be able to live a life that's pleasing and have that life of integrity. But to do that, you have to be practicing. You have to develop skills, learn how to do those things. Like when I should have been doing all those years that school was easy, I should have been not just making straight A's. I should have been writing stuff that was way beyond me because I should have been applying myself and learning those skills. I didn't. And when challenge came, I was blown up. Because when storms come in your life, and they will, if you haven't encountered one, know that it's coming. Jesus promised this. In this world, you will have trouble pretty emphatic but if if during your time of ease or during your time when you're not you're not grappling with something if during that time you are spending time in the word putting it in your heart tucking it away putting it in your memory then when storms come you will have the sword to fight off the lies of the enemy if you're spending time at the throne room at the foot of the cross praying to God practicing knowing what it what it's like to wait patiently and what it, what it sounds like when he finally answers and recognizing it. If you are crying out every day that you want the Holy Spirit to lead you in every area of your life, then when storm comes, the storm still comes, but you have peace. You don't have fear. 
You know, you know, because you know that God is great and God is good. You don't wonder if he's good. Oh, God, will you rescue me? It's not that at all. You, I know you're good, and you know that from the inside out. Then you'll be able to stand, and God will be pleased. So, as we, so, so with that as our backdrop, as we move into 2016, because it's our custom to always kind of think, okay, we're going to start something new. I'm going to challenge you for 2016. <clears throat> so there's a, it's a three-part challenge, but they're all connected. And it goes like this. I want you to do this. Honestly evaluate whether God has the primary place over your life. Primary, not one of many. Primary. That means if you're married, he's over your wife in your heart. That means if you have the best job in the world, he's over your job. He's over your church. He's over your church family. He's primary. There can only be one primary. And if you'll do that, if you'll make an honest look and be honest because God knows, God already knows what's in there, then will you commit to a, a driven pursuit of God through Christ Jesus? Will you be moving up the steps of the down escalator? Because if not, you're going to get swept away by the motion of the steps and all the people and all the forces of our culture that are trying to drag you down. Will you commit to do that? That's my challenge. And lastly, will you decide, because it is a choice, will you do decide to submit yourself to the Holy Spirit, to let the Holy Spirit guide you in every area of your life, even stuff that doesn't seem important? And I don't mean silly things. The Holy Spirit doesn't care if you get a cheeseburger or a Big Mac. Not that. But anything of consequence. If, you, if, you in your, if you're thinking, yeah, you know, I should call my friend Tim you need to right away be in a place where your heart recognizes, say, is that the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit, then you, and you pray. Just quickly. I'm not talking about being weird about it, but just go, God, did you want me to call him? Because I don't think about him all the time. And then move in it. You may find a whole new power within you that you didn't even know you had. Honestly evaluate. Commit to a driven pursuit and follow the Holy Spirit's leading. That's the three parts of the challenge. I beg of you to consider this. It will change your life. Your Christian walk will become a true walk. Moving up instead of thinking you're still when you're actually moving back. And the last part of that is this. If, if you say, yes, I want to do those, then you need to make a plan. So I'll agree together with you. Let's plan to know God through the reading of his word, to know more about him and learn about him through his holy word. Let's plan to do that. Let's plan to pray and then pray and then pray some more. Let's plan to listen and watch for the movement of the Holy Spirit. Plan. And, and you need to know what a plan is. See, what we do is that we do this. We wish. See, wishing is not planning. Planning and wishing are not the same. You can't, you can't go out of here today and go, yeah, boy, I, I should do better at those things. That's not a plan. A plan, a plan is this. A plan means to develop a course of action to achieve something. You're developing a course of action. That's a plan. So if you're hearing this today and you come out and you go home and you just wish, I've just wasted 40 minutes of your time and mine. Because that's not going to do it. Wishing doesn't make anything different. Now your plan must be infused with the strength of God. So you can't plan and then think, I'll just do it on my own. Make a plan. Pray about it. Ask for God to give you strength to carry out the plan. And I promise, if you do that, you'll be amazed that he'll meet that challenge and you'll have the strength.
And then together, we can run up the down escalator, regardless of the direction that it's headed. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you again for your holy word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would melt hearts, that you would make us recognize our place before a holy and just God. Lord, I thank you that you are changing us from the inside out. Father, reveal to us things in our heart that we need to bring before you and cut away. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would lead us daily, minute by minute by minute. And it would exalt you and bring you glory. People would say, those people serve an amazing God. For your glory, through the name of Jesus, amen.